we've just done a study recently that, that proves that if you give free school lunches to vulnerable and poor families, that it doesn't cost the state money because over a 10-year period, it makes billions through productivity and how that a productivity of that child and how they well they do at school. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Jamie Oliver returns to the show, and we could not be happier to talk about so many things, including spice blends, Cool Britannia, the sugar tax, and what sparks creativity for a guy who is always working on three or seven or 14 projects at once. This was such a cool talk, and I, I hope you enjoy it. Jamie Oliver, welcome back to the Taste Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's good to be here. You know what? We were just talking about off mic about doing like a drum circle with the yeah. with the table. Yeah, man. And then we were talking about Cool Britannia and yeah. we were talking about the Stone Roses. Yeah. Now we were Does anyone in the US know the Stone Roses? No. No. I, I mean that with 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 sadness. I yeah. think right now we have a little bit of a nineties revival here. Yeah. But it's more of our stuff than their stuff. I mean, Blur, I think, and Oasis. I guess the comparison would have been, like, around the time Nirvana broke, there would have been yep. a myriad of bands in that vein and that energy. Yeah. And Stone Roses were kind of, I guess, our version of Nirvana, but just weren't as kind of rocky and commercial and kind of went so global. But Yeah. Yeah, I, I think, look, that, that having those moments of a scene. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so when I was, like, 17... Uh, to 23, like, it, yeah, Cool Britannia, there was a lot of cool stuff going on. Great bands, great art, like supermodels and kind of oh like my gosh. art scenes and everyone was partying in London and and the big cities around the country. Yeah, Alex James from Blur, a mm. friend of yours, yes. writes in his, have you read his memoir? No. It's, it's really good. good. One thing I've never told him, um, <laughs> and he's a friend. Yeah. Um, he doesn't know this, but he chatted up my wife in, in, in Tokyo years ago. So he writes about... Before he was married. Yeah, Before right. I was married. <laughs> he writes about Tokyo with... Yeah, I bet he did. <laughs> well, did it say anything about a, a, a brunette? Tall brunette? Yeah. He, he had, <laughs> called Jules. <laughs> he, he talked about... No, he, he talked about Tokyo being, like, enchanted with the city, but, I mean, the guy was on every pill of manageable and writes about that. Mm. In, 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 have you been to Japan? I have. Yeah. I, have you been to a gig in Japan? Um, I have. Yeah. Let's talk about this. Okay. Have you? Americans and Brits wouldn't understand this. I know. So 60,000 people, 40,000 people, yep. whatever, 1,000 people, it's the most orderly, queuing, yep. silent sort of uh, you know, movement of people into a gig venue. Yeah. They are so polite. Yeah. And you think, well, this is going to be terrible. Yeah, you think it's going to be dead. The second the first chord is played, they go ballistic. Jumping up in unison. Wild animals. Nutters. I I thought it was an incredible moment. I saw Weezer there in 1999, and I I saw exactly what you said, orderly, and then Pogo. Yeah, mad. What was your gig? I I, I can't remember. I think it was, um, oh, oh God, it was... um, it was a bunch of like rap acts from the UK that I mm. hadn't heard of, but they were good. Mm. And um, there was um, a great band. What was it? Deeper Underground. Uh, mm-hmm. Deep, deep. Oh, the Sneaker Pimps. Yes, yeah, Six yeah, yeah. Underground. Yeah, yeah. That one. Yeah, um, Sneaker, Sneaker Pimps. Pimps were wicked. And um, yeah. but like, and then, and it was utter chaos for the whole period of the gig. And then the minute it's finished, yeah, orderly. 
quiet. Okay. I mean, in the UK, there's normally a few fights. <laughs> you know, there's like food getting thrown everywhere. There's someone sick in the corner, left, right and centre. But this this was, I've never seen anything. So, so tell me about backstage at Wembley. You probably have seen some things. I feel like the VIP situation at some of these big, massive shows is pretty fun. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I, I mean, over the years, I've, I've done it quite a few times yeah. in award ceremonies and bits sure. and pieces. Um, I always like it when the Americans come in, like Eminem. With like you know yeah. thirty crew, yeah, and uh, and it's, it's like I think is if you if you're if you're kind of like if you've got enough drama, like you can pull it off. Yeah, like, yeah, he can pull it off. It's fine. Like yeah. he can do whatever. But he you, likes. I mean, Kate Moss had probably had forty though back in the day. Uh, yeah, I mean, um, <laughs> I didn't actually. I, <laughs> I have seen her uh, 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 in the backstage for gig, but I can't talk about it. No, no, you can't. <laughs> um, all right. So our last interview, thank you for coming back. I love this tradition. Thank Let's you. keep doing this because I really do appreciate you stopping by. You talked about, we didn't get into it, but you grew up in a pub. You grew yes. up in a pub. So I want to know, um, and you talked about people fascinating you, and that was the moment when you realized that people fascinate you. Who, who are some of these people when you're growing Just up Just really pub? regular folks. I mean, I think... Um, you don't really have pubs in the US, and I, th I think that's a great loss, actually. Yeah. Um, it's not a bar, and, I mean, a sort of a really good local dive bar would be the closest to it. Yeah. But, I mean, the vibe in pubs is slightly different because, like, I grew up above a pub. I lived in a pub. Mm. And to put that into perspective, it was a 16th century building yeah old hall house like mm -hmm. like low beams because mm -hmm. like back in people forget like before america was even created as we know it like like we we were we had scurvy we had mm -hmm. we were malnourished we were small so like the doors <laughs> in these buildings are small like the ceiling like you hit your head yeah um but the great thing about a pub is everyone's welcome and that's uniquely unusual mm -hmm. like where everyone's welcome so you could have someone that's a millionaire next yeah. to uh you know a romany traveler Mm -hmm. And that was my reality. Like, and you equalize over a shared, um, a bitter and yeah. some some food? Yeah. Uh, beers, bitter, um, um, spirits, uh, roaring fire, yeah. simple foods. My dad, I didn't know it at the time, but my dad was actually one of the early pioneers of what became known as gastro pub. Yeah. So that is a pub with all of its charm and, and the rainbows of people that go there, um, but really good food. But really good food. Local like El food. Your dad's, your dad's a chef. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what were some of the dishes? Let me just get into that early on when, oh. when you're talking about ca crystallizing this gastro pub movement, which, you know, April Bloomfield, all these people in America have, have brought to our country. Yeah. I mean, like, obviously contemporary is a moving target and, yeah, and sure isn't is. stagnant. So my dad, who was a chef and, and worked in France and then took over the pub. So he he thought and probably was contemporary. So he was doing like classic French dishes. So um, like using local produce to make sort of like, you know, um, uh, coca van, beef mm -hmm. bourguignon, but then British pies, like beautiful hot water pastries. Yeah. You know, um, and all the desserts. So very Germanic, Swiss, French, Italian desserts, all made on site. Meringues, ice creams, pastries. I thought that was normal. And, mm -mm. and I know you know that mm. that isn't normal. Even to this day, that's not normal no. for a pub no. to have a, a seven chefs in the kitchen, um, a pastry chef, um, whole deer, local deer shot, um, pheasant partridge, yeah. uh, rabbits, hare, of course, chicken and steaks, as you'd expect, mm -hmm. steak nights, um, whole pigs getting broken down, butchered, fish day on a, on a, on a Tuesday and a Thursday, crabs, lobsters. Wow. Um, so you would, you would serve a dish that would be, you know, like a kind of bistro-style dish, you know, sort of 10, 
fifteen dollars, I guess. You know, you'd, wow, you'd have, only ten fifteen. Yeah, you'd have stuff like in comparison to yeah, translating yeah, it yeah. about that, but also you'd stretch the menu with yeah. your you know beautiful steaks. Uh, and where you put a bit of effort in and sort of go double that. Mm-hmm. So it's quite nice that you, I, I like I like the fact that the building welcomes all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that anyone from any religion, ethnicity, um, um, financial background background is welcome. But also the food did the same. Yeah. So you had really humble, like super humble, well made sandwiches. You know, with a portion of chips. I mean, like who doesn't love that? No. Um, but the the bread would be baked on site. Um, but then you've kind of got pit crab. You know, with little potato salads and 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 sort of clever little kind real of, luxury type yeah, of homemade mayonnaises and bits and pieces like that. So, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I was really lucky to grow up in that. And like Have I, we lost our way? Are we finding restaurants like this now? I mean, I feel margins now are worse than ever. I mean, when you were growing up, you could make a living as a restaurateur. Now it's not really as viable. Yeah, I think one of the problems is, um, and. Look, the, the Americans are the masters of fast food, right? So, fast, sorry about that. No, listen. I mean, I, I think it's um, it's human nature to find really good, affordable, uh, scalable ways of doing anything, mm-hmm. let alone food. So, I get that. I think where this is just my opinion, but where government, uh, local or national, has this power is you can't compare a gastro pub or a local restaurant that takes on young kids and trains them and teaches them how to fillet fish and to mm-hmm. bone um, butcher meat and to marinate and to, to grill on site and to pick salads and wash it and make dressings like how can you how can you tax and treat that business the same as something where everything comes out of a packet and it, it's very ambient and it never goes off and 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 it's 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 they're very mm. robust sort of less vulnerable businesses. They don't, I mean, they employ people, yeah, yeah, tick, but they don't train anyone to a sort of, and look, so you might say, well, what's the difference? The difference is culture. Yeah. Because anyone doing the first, any local restaurant in this country or any country is essentially amplifying what it is to be American or a New Yorker. Mm Mm-hmm. By buying local gear, yeah, and by and training the, the, the staff to actually cook in a way that has a tradition, that yeah. has a, a an origin. Yeah, but right? the, but putting a value on that is <laughs> so so that's called culture. Right. So you sort of look at Italy and you look at how tricky their economy has been and their prime ministers over the years and this that and the other. Mm-hmm. But the, their culture's thick as treacle, like it's yep. thick, it's like cement. Um, so um, and of course America deserves that. And, and I've spent a lot of time traveling this country. I've done whole cooking series yeah. around this country. Like Exciting. You went to public schools. Under the skin of it. I um, loved it. I loved gangsters that. in L.A. and getting <laughs> into sort of like Mexican, yeah. Puerto Rican. like. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, and actually, when you what I learned about American cooking is, is it's a metaphor for the world. Just Interesting. It's, it's, it's creation is mm. a celebration and a metaphor mm. for the world. So I, you know, even when I lived in Huntington, West Virginia, um, which at that time was the most unhealthy time in, uh, town in America, um, based on the CDC report. Um, uh, after about two weeks, I'm looking at like little illustrations and pictures on public buildings. And I'm like, are there a lot of Scottish people here? Mm. And they're like, no, 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 no. Are there a lot of Germans here? No, 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 no. And then I, I kept asking, like probably being annoying. And then, like basically, a couple of weeks later, you started finding out all of these people you built relationships with, their grandparents oh. were German or Scottish. And then you start things. Okay, let's start to. And then you start realizing that yep. there's like amazing pie work in this little area. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, we, of, regional American cuisine is is definitely informed by Western European culture, and we, it, we, our traditions are grand. Jamie, I want to go back to something you said earlier about 
what we pay for food. And I think when you're talking about Italian culture is, is rock solid, I think what you're saying in my interpretation is that Italians pay more for food than Americans. It's a topic we talk about a lot on our show. How do we get people to pay more for food right now? Um, I, can I redress the question? Sure, let's read. Um, how do we get people to cook? Yeah, yeah. Is the real question. Um, I, you know, I think if you can cook, whether you're rich or poor, you have the capacity to live a very beautiful, civilized, um, rich life full of moments surrounded by people you love uh, and deliciousness. And the most exciting food I've ever eaten on the planet, and let's just refer to Italy because we're talking about it, and they're very good at it, um, has never been about riches. Mm -hmm. It's never been about foie gras and fillet steaks. No, 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 no. They're, they're, they're a gnarly, clever, mm. very agile, bendy, flexible community of people. Mm. Look what Italians have done around the world, right? Uh, there is, of course, other cultures, you know, exciting as well. But, but Italians is something I know quite well. Um, and cucina povera, or poor people's cooking, mm. again, that's, well, which lens are you looking at it? Oh, mm -hmm. that's, you know, that's... Um, something with five ingredients or, you know, just a vegetarian mm. dish that's delicious. With past like, I, I've been with nonnas mm -hmm. um, in their hundreds and her version of cucina povera was boiled pasta. Mm. That's dinner. Yeah. If she was lucky, a swig of olive oil. And if she was very, very lucky, maybe a grating of pecorino or parmesan. Mm -hmm. And in the summer, maybe some chopped tomato. That was it. And, and again, for context, because it's really important that we reference what bad is. And I mean, there's bad now and bad then, but mm -hmm. gratitude yeah. has a really important place to part in food and our culture. Um, she didn't have a pair of shoes until she was 13. Her first pair of shoes, mm -hmm. 13. So um, was that common in that part of Italy? Yes. Um, is it common now? No, like we've moved on. But I think, uh, I mean, this idea that science and technology or a brand or a fast food mechanism or supply chain is going to fix your, 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 your poverty yeah. or your struggles when it comes to the pound, uh, I, I would say probably best not to. Um, and actually looking back, if you can cook, you have freedom. If you, if you can cook 10 recipes... See, look, if I had a magic wand, I would wish that every American child at 16 that leaves school, if they choose to leave, could cook. Couldn't leave unless they can cook 10 recipes to save their life. And you could structure those. Those 10 recipes could be like, you know, it could be how to make a, a really good soup out, mm. of, out of anything, mm -hmm. like a really good stew. And, of course, that takes in chilies and curries and cool stuff like that. You know, like, you know, how to make veggies taste good. Like, mm -hmm. like you could do it in 10 recipes. And the basics of budgeting... So after it's the important point there, budgeting is super important because I think right now, um, when you talk about learning those ten recipes, we don't as a culture understand what you actually have to buy. Yeah, and it gets to be daunting for home cooks to kind of climb that mountain of of, of all the shopping, all the expense that goes into it. And well, let's put that into context. Mm -hmm. After your mortgage of your home, yeah, the, generally speaking in this country, the second biggest outgoing is, is food. I wish you were right, but right. I don't think so. Americans spend between 8 and 11% of their annual income on food. I think in the UK it's more. Even 8% is a, is, a, is, a, is a shitload of money. Yeah, true, true. So it's being, um, being resourceful with that cash and knowing how to make it stretch, waste, yeah. waste less, cheaper cuts of meat. 
you know, some of my favourite cuts of beef, for instance, aren't like the fillet and the sirloin, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and like that idea that kind of like knowing your five, ten miles where you live and like knowing yep. every food business in that so you can duck yep. and dive. But also um, those suppliers, if you can build a relationship, they want you for life. Yeah. So sometimes you can go, I've only got $5 or $10. Like, what can I get for that? Mm-hmm. And, and they'll, they'll work something out because it's not about the day. It's about... How do we get having... these 10 to 12 recipes into a curriculum in the public school? How do we How do, we do that? I because... think it should be law. I honestly think... I think yeah. it's... A, I actually think if you look at, like, public health statistics in the UK or the US, uh, and if you look at the trajectory of of unhealthy kids that leave school and how that goes into their productivity and mm-hmm. how long they live and, and when they die and the cost, you know, because of, you know, absenteeism from work and all that sort of stuff. Um, I think it's a kind of human right to learn mm-hmm. how to nourish yourself. Yeah. So I think school's the perfect place. Yeah. Oh, my God, school's the perfect place to learn 10 recipes. Yeah, putting it and quantifying Science, it the way... history, yeah, and then Budgeting, food. math. There's no better way to learn yeah. maths than baking. You know, there's no better way to learn yeah. history than food, whether it's American history or, or ancestral history of the founders of America. So I, I think... Um, but again, kind of going back to that thing about treating a proper restaurant the same as a fast food joint mm-hmm. from, from a business tax point of view, and why is that important? Because you want there to be lots more small neighbourhood restaurants that are interesting. Yeah. Why? Because that's cultural richness mm-hmm. of that that postcode, that area. That you know what I mean. That's yeah. that. So if you lose that, then you just end up with fast food, and that's it. Yeah. And, and I know you know that's not it. Like, there's so much interesting stuff going yeah, on. Yeah, I so. mean, the fast food lobby is strong here in the U.S., and I think, unfortunately, the tax subsidies are not going to go to the local govern, uh, the local restaurants, but more the uh, the big conglomerates. It's the way our system is rigged. Um, it's disappointing, and I agree with you, to, to get, offer some kind of incentive for the small restaurants to stay open with tax breaks or well, I think it's just, government. It, yeah, I just think if if you want that next generation of cooks, like proper cooks, um, they have to come from somewhere. Yeah. And, you know, yes, there's colleges and stuff where you can learn, but that, that, that's not really where they're kind of – they're, they're not truly given birth to then. They find their inspiration with inspirational leaders and people that are genius and local and yeah. and doing 14, 16 hours a day sort of like caring mm-hmm. and building relationships with amazing – I mean, you've got incredible farmers in America, yeah. you know. I mean, it's a real dichotomy. Some of the worst and some of the very best on the planet is here. Yeah, it is true. for the taking. I have to ask you, on the topic of taxes, you have promoted the sugar tax. Mm -hmm. You've talked uh, positively about the sugar tax. We, uh, in New York City, uh, our former mayor, Michael Bloomberg, two mayors ago, attempted to to promote a sugar tax, shut down. Um, It's a controversial topic, but I would Mm. like to get your take on the sugar tax. How does that work? So Bloomberg was right. He was kind of a pioneer. Yeah. it, probably with my experience, I would say he was about 18 months too early. Yep. If he'd have done it 18 months later, like the world would be a little bit different and accepted it. When I, I did a documentary and I drove a campaign and we achieved it, um, so we have a sugary drinks tax in the UK. Mm-hmm. To put that in context, like, of course I understand that people don't like tax, but let me just explain this. So first of all, we gave birth to it as a tax for good. Well, how do you do that? Well, it's really simple. Where's the target? The target was sugary sweetened drinks the single biggest source of sugar in all of our kids' diet. Same here, same in the UK. So we have a target. So we're going to tax that 
and we're taxing it to get reformulation because we've been asking them for 20 years, mm-hmm. just like here, and they don't do it because voluntary doesn't work. No. So we put them on the naughty step. We gave them a tax. <laughs> Britain had the fastest reformulation of sugary sweetened drinks on the planet ever. Millions and millions of tons of empty, wasted, useless calories were taken out of the reformulation doesn't mean sugar alternatives though right it can mean anything okay so lower the sugar uh, you you know use sucralose or you know uh, uh, you know natural sweeteners unnatural sweeteners it's not perfect but it's much better so in the equation but basically what it created was about 400 million pounds of tax that was only given to British primary schools for breakfast clubs and sports clubs. Mm. So there was a good benefit. So to they the tax. reinvested the tax into. Yeah. It was the first education. new money in yeah. schools for, for, for a decade yeah. uh, that wasn't budgeted for. Um, but most importantly, it did what it should have done, which was reformulate the whole industry. Now, let me give you another little thing that's interesting because the kind of capitalist business people who thought I was the enemy. Um, Many people thought you're the enemy. Yeah, I mean, yeah. This is, this is one of the largest lobbies in government, is the sugar industry. Industry. Yeah. I mean, they're massive. they're very very short sighted. Yes, um, and they and 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 what they don't like with all their might and intelligence and and money is they don't like change because of what we did in the UK. Because they reformulated, they also researched and developed more drinks offers, more fruit offers, more mm-hmm. dairy offers, more water offers. So the industry became wider, healthier, and therefore more sustainable. The businesses were more sustainable. And guess what? They took more money. Yeah. And the CEOs got bigger bonuses because they took more money, right? <laughs> so ironically, I was the enemy, but we reformulated sugar, got rid of a load of empty rubbish. The industry structurally as product, the portfolio of products across the whole industry is way more um, varied a.k.a. more choice. choice. Yeah, and marketed. Cho- choice is democracy, right? Choice is good. And probably marketed better. I mean, you when you can market healthier for good or for bad, I mean, the net positive is there. No, these empty calories are gone. They're going to make money. I mean, all, these all, all drinks are a massive industry. Listen, if you – anyone listening here will be like, like, if you just ask people cutely, oh, can you just do this, please? No, they're not. Mm-mm. People hate change. But I do think the jobs of scientists and, and, and public health experts and people that map patterns of um, – really bad ill health across our parents and kids you know they can follow the patterns of you know why one of the biggest reasons for kids getting put under a general anesthetic is multiple teeth extraction and that's not one or two we're talking seven to everything mm-hmm. out you know um and uh, so so we we can we can look at how kids are just getting bigger and less healthy and they're dying younger yeah. as adults so i think that's that's where you should have faith in legislation. You should have faith in public health laws. I mean, these are the same laws, by the way, that check the rivets on your plane that you follow. Yeah, in and, and and Jimmy, are you are you ever going to to be there asking the questions for the prime minister? Are you going to be in parliament? Uh, no, I, I don't know if I could. I I I I think I would be too street fighter for them. Isn't um, that isn't I, that I looked think, upon as a positive trait in some parts of the UK? I, I haven't been asked to go into to politics, but I mean, I've been through five prime ministers and thirteen <laughs> education secretaries in in the last fifteen years. Yeah, um, and I I feel I mean definitely at the age of forty seven, I feel like I'm getting wiser. Yeah, and I know that it's within all of our human nature not to like busybodies, 
But I swear to you, I'm not a busybody. I would much rather be doing other stuff. But because I'm in my job and I have the position that I have and because I'm yeah. exposed to the things I'm exposed to, and that's real people, real communities, sort of things happening with communities like skin on skin, like mm -hmm. where they're really making change. You know, everything from... Um, you know, food banks, this, that, and the other. We have programs where we teach people in the, in the community 10 recipes to save your life. Yeah. When you say you have life. faith, though, it makes me just think that is the mindset that we need in government. I have faith in, I think the public are really busy and they're trying to be the best they can be. And, and other than all the miscommunications that are going on, I think the public would appreciate governments to have access to the best minds on the planet, yeah. which they do. And then exercise that logically to protect, first of all, kids, mm -hmm. and then us. And and the, but like I said, these are the same laws that make you wear a seatbelt. And then when they make you wear a seatbelt, well, what kind of seatbelt? Made out of what? What's the regs? Mm -hmm. Like, there's nothing wrong with having high expectations for yeah. us to be safer. I agree. Is there another laser focused? Um element in our food culture that needs reform it, i mean sugar tax you obviously directionally were so on point yeah well, yeah what's I, the next one i mean there's so many i know i, I mean know. our our relationship i mean i think like sprays and pesticides is a really big obvious one there's yeah. hundreds that are banned in europe that are used every day here in the states and there's various reasons from that, you know, respiratory diseases, you know, connections with, you mm -hmm. know, all kinds of disorders and stuff like that. And mm -hmm. how and when you can spray them next to, you know, outside fields next to schools. And, you know, like there's like there's how, you know, even if you look at the school food system, the commodity system. Yeah. And, you know, certainly when I was working in Huntington, I think there was um, in a five day week, you had to get rid of 11 grains. So you're worried about childhood obesity and you've got 11 grain dishes yeah. getting served in five days. Yeah. And like there was no cap on sugar. No. And, and um, like it's almost designed, certainly then it was designed to fail. So I, I think, look, there's, you know, I, I always think in the UK we need to have like a ministry of food. Yeah. Uh, we haven't. Yeah. We, we our, used to in the war, yeah. actually. And by the way, just for, re and by the way, just for reference, um, Britain was at its most healthiest about five years after the war. Mm. That, that was like like we were in good nick. Mm -hmm. So all of our terrible graphs have really come from that moment. Yeah, that moment. Once, I mean, once the... But I think you should have a Ministry of Food here that has some yeah. clout. Yeah, our, our agricultural department has is, is over overburdened and there's a lot of yeah, issues. Yeah, look, I think, I, th I think, again, it's like, it's not like I'm a hippie. I'm not walking no. around burning sage. I don't think Saying, like, listen, you know, You're not you should all be eating, like, you, like, eat lentils all day, you lot. Like, <laughs> I, I think, you know, I, I believe in mixed farming. Um, yeah. And I believe in farmers. And, and you already, but you certainly don't need me to help. Like, all the answers are here in America. Like, you have some of the best practice in farming, in the world, yeah. in America. But the system, it favours no change. Yeah. And there's actually no good reason for that because everything changes and, and it needs to change because we're changing, yeah. the environment's changing. Um, I mean, our farm bill is changing. That's really what it comes down to. The farm bill is always up for debate and I think that's what's causing um, a lot of problems that we that you're that the root of a lot of our problems is that farm bill being tossed between administrations and tossed between power from the right and left. I want to ask you, you are the second most best-selling author in the UK. I think you've sold 50 million copies of your books, second to J.K. Rowling. So that's a lot of books. I yeah. got to ask you, 
what drives you to write more? I mean, we've had two in two years, and I, I, I respect the tenacity when it comes to yeah, publishing. Yeah, I, I mean, I think a couple of things, really. I mean, obviously, it pays the bills. Um, I, I get uh, a pound 20 for every book I sell. Uh, so, I think you make so, a little more than me, just yeah. a little more, but like that's about right for um, us. <laughs> I, it can be less. Um, <laughs> it can but be. just for context for the listeners, like it, it's being an author is not necessarily an easy way to make a living, right? No. Uh, like a pound 20 or a pound or, or yeah. let's say a dollar a book. No, I, I mean, um, yeah, yeah. like you've got to sell a lot of books to make a living. Yes. Um, and it's really hard selling books. I mean, I somehow, I, I don't know, I've been able to resonate with not just my own community in Britain, yeah. but, you know, uh, many countries around the world. Uh, translated, I think, 55 times. Mm-hmm. I think we're in, like, 86 countries or something like that. Um, and I've been published here for nearly 20 years or so. Yeah. Um, I, I keep doing it because I enjoy it. I love it. I keep doing it because the customer's changing a lot. So when I started book one, Naked Chef, the average time spent cooking in the UK was 46 minutes. Now... <laughs> Well, the last survey, the same survey was done before COVID. It was 21 minutes. Mm-hmm. So I think post-COVID, there's been a lot more kind of like digitization of apps, food delivery and and, mm-hmm. and, and phone and phone payment. So I think we're probably down at 19 minutes. I know for a fact from basket data in the US and the UK that we're cooking less now than we were before COVID, which was already at a low. Yeah. So, um, you know, I'm kind of, it, I'm a, I feel like I'm a rare breed farmer. Do you know what I mean? I'm trying mm-hmm. to keep... I, I'm trying. I generally, I, I'm trying to find like if you look at One Pound Wonders, like that's mm-hmm. the low washing up, minimum washing up cookbook. Mm-hmm. That appeals to a lot of people. Yeah. Um, and another book that I wrote was Five Ingredients, like small amounts of ingredients, right? So that appeals to a lot of modern day people because they're frightened and they haven't necessarily learned, or mm-hmm. most likely haven't learned to cook at home, and they probably haven't learned at school either. So they're nervous. So do I buy that that I know is good? Or do I risk it and try having a go at something that I have never... So it's very ner- it's an emotional, nerve-wracking thing for people. So I feel like I'm still needed. I feel yeah. like I still enjoy it. Um, and then last but not least, like I, I think like at school I did really badly. So yeah. at school I did really badly. I flunked just about everything. And I really struggled with reading and writing when I was a kid. I had dyslexia. So I think the fact that I'm the second biggest author in the UK makes me chuckle. Yeah. It makes me giggle, but more than anything, it kind of makes me hopeful for all the other kids that struggle. Because, like, if um, honestly, if they can't find any kind of inspiration yeah. in me being able to pull it off, then do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, if, no, I, and if I can do it, then that, that should mean for all those kids that struggle at school, they just need to solve problems differently. They just need to have the confidence to kind of get Is that what drives it. your interest in public education is your struggles yeah. as, a, as a child? Like you empathize with yeah, our time. school system? Yeah, I think like I am the kid that resented school so much when I left. Yeah. I hated it. I hated black and white. It was the enemy. I hated the institution of it like because it made me feel small and uh, embarrassed and like, I'm not getting the violin out. I'm just saying, like, you know, that 16-year-old no. kid that left. Like, I'd spent five years getting pulled out of school, going to special needs classes. That's what it was called. Like, it's, like, it's, it's quite embarrassing. Yeah. So I think anything that singles you out at school is probably not sympathetic contemporary education. I think education's got, like, you know, a lot of what we do, certainly in Britain, I can't comment on, on America, but I've seen a fair bit over here, but certainly in Britain, like, a lot of what we do still is like what a, bun- a bunch of monks and vicars like organized like a few hundred years ago like yeah. come on like yeah. so um 
We've seen it in the Harry Potter movies. Yeah, I mean, yeah, look, if you look, if you look at what's hurting, yeah, what's hurting young adults, ex students, is debt. They can't manage money yeah. and ill health, mm-hmm. diet related disease, cooking, like environment. You know, they don't. You know, we need to get kids in both our countries closer to the the mud, yeah, the filth. Um, get them just to cook a handful of dishes just so they have choice. Yeah, back to the It's not even saying recipes. you have to cook. It's like... Back to the 12. Because it's interesting. When when you see people that can cook challenged hard with budget and money problems like we're reading about all the time now, mm-hmm. and then if you look in the eyes of someone with the same challenges that can't cook, that family is in chaos. Mm-hmm. Honestly. So, so being able to cook a small amount of things is freedom. It's choices. It's it's a kind of tenderness and a kind of anchor to a home. Um, and I, and I am being romantic now. Yeah, a little and, bit. And it deserves. I to like be. it though. I, like I mean, it. I've I, I've I've witnessed so many very poor families cooking extraordinary food, having one wonderful wonderful meals, mm-hmm. um, clever cooking with a handful of simple ingredients all around the world. And it's been a joy. And that's what definitely makes me get up in the morning and want to learn mm-hmm. to cook. More Your stuff. newest book, One Simple, One Pan Wonders. Uh, I wanted to ask you a few questions about the recipes. Mm. Um, you talk about frying pan pasta. Are you about pasta water? How do you cook with pasta water? I think it's Without com- it. Or- with or without it? Do you throw the pasta water into the pan? Yeah. So boiling water. So you work on that sauce first in one pan. Yeah. And then you use fresh pasta, which is completely untraditional. Yeah. Um, and and then, you know, like just water goes in on top and you bring it to the boil, season it up, get the right consistency and serve it. Um, why is that an interesting one? I think like because you can get fresh pasta in all the supermarkets mm-hmm. and because the time that people are willing to give now. If you look through that chapter, you're going to see color, texture, yeah. form. Like there's some really nice combinations. Yeah. They're all about eight to 12 minutes to cook. And you can cook one to two portions in a pan, one thing to wash up. Um, so, I mean, interestingly, it wouldn't take me long to look into Italian history to, to find another equivalent of, well, how do how did Italians address that problem or yeah. this problem 100 years ago, 300 years ago? So, um, you know, the Italians are very clever. And I think um, that became a, that wasn't supposed to be a chapter. I just did one, and I'm like, damn, why have I not done that before? And I did it again and again. I'm like, right, that's a chapter because I can. Yeah, pan pasta. You just know it's going to go viral. Yeah, and um, and then like you know we we got there's like loads of stuff to do with. Like, I I really looked the pantry of ingredients that I worked from are the things that I know most mm-hmm. people buy most weeks. Salmon salmon steaks, like chicken legs. You know, um, trying to actively give you good excuses to get more of the good stuff in you. So in my books, like, I celebrate everything, but really, you know, veggie, vegan, meat, fish, breakfast, lunch, dinner, desserts. Like, I'm trying to sort of, before I even write one recipe, I kind of design the structure, which I know sounds a bit, I don't do this all the time, but for this particular, I wanted this book to be the most user-friendly cookbook I'd ever written. Well, the way it's directed, the art direction too, is you're showing all the mise en place, you're showing the ingredients, which yeah. is um, not common. I think it's a more difficult direction yeah. to do that. And you're People like, love to see, you know, 
what they're doing and like yeah. kind of cook by numbers and you know whether it's kind of like when you made your first Lego or yeah. you know any kind <laughs> any kind of comparable thing where you've got yeah. a, a little manual and it's and, and ultimately it's like a little Tom Tom or Waze you know it's getting from A to Z and you want to get to A to Z yeah. you know when you get in a cab and they take you the long way and you're like no 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 dude you go there <laughs> like, so that's my job's to sort of navigate you in the less least friction mm-hmm. as possible because here's the thing right this is the way I look at it anyway like. If you write a recipe, let's say you write a recipe that's good. It's a nice title. It's a nice concept. Let's say the recipe's rubbish. It's, yeah. it's badly written. does not work. Yeah. Um, someone's going to go out, spend some money. They're going to cook it. They're not going to get A to Z in a straight line. They're going to be stressed. And then they might not like it. And if mm. it doesn't work, which the, the probability is higher, then they might not ever cook again for a long time. So just for context... Bearing in mind that most people don't cook anymore, and it's probably hasn't been worse than now. Yeah. Um, I need people to start and finish something, and I call them safe, non-vulnerable recipes. Mm-hmm. Like if I'm adding chorizo to a dish, I know it's going to have dynamic flavors, big seasoning, a lovely color. Because like, we're going out and yeah. buying that chorizo, and maybe not the yeah. market we usually normally and it's shop just at. Safe, like that's a, that, that, yeah. well, they're going to love that. Yeah. And yep. even if you do it bad, I like it when if you do a recipe badly and it's still great. That's good vibes. Yep. So um, if you look through my books, there's, a, you know, if, if you pick like a, I don't know, um, if you, an award-winning like posh book that's great, like I can pick a few of mine out that will go like toe-to-toe mm-hmm. and like you can have, have, they can have a little ruck, right? That's fine. Like, so I've done those books, but in these books, which are solution books, yeah, a lot of what I have to do is really compromise with com- common sense um, and try and look at the problems yeah that we're facing at the grocery store and in the uk you sell the cookbooks at the grocery store yeah which is not our culture in the states which is great well when i did the veg book um which is about like three four uh, years ago Mm -hmm. and did really well actually and um which was contrary i was pitching that for eight years yeah they weren't like um, like, it smashed it It smashed it because people want to know how to make veggies taste good yeah yeah. um and uh, we sold that book in the veg department yeah. And they sold more veg and more books. So why it's a don't win-win. we in the States, like working in publishing, I always wonder why can't we get slotted in the veg department and actually do the same thing? What what's the deal? I don't know. Yeah. It, like, like again, like sometimes logical things don't work. Like I know. so so for instance, we've just done a study recently that, that proves that if you give free school lunches to 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 vulnerable and poor families, that it doesn't cost the state money because over a 10-year period it makes billions Mm. makes in what uh, way through productivity and how that a productivity of that child and how they they don't follow you know how well they do at school yeah um and they're from really good proof points so the idea we're living in a time where it's very you know whether it's the uk or here like whether it's the politics elections everything's in a kind of three four year cycle uh, and so everything's about now like what can i do now that makes me look good what, yeah. what can i do now that i'm famous for um i think there's a lot of ego in politics yeah things like yeah. child health and stuff like that for me feel like it should be cross-party and like absolutely 25 agree. year plan and absolutely but that's too agree. logical so that ain't gonna happen too logical um, um let me ask you is there a cuisine an origin that you really want to learn more about that you feel that right now you're it's on your mind uh peruvian i desperately want to yeah. go to peru 
the crossover from Japanese oh. cuisine too, but yeah, also, the Silk Route, you know, the yeah. way that the kind of spices and trade, the fact that they're but Peruvian, the, like I mean, the the native culture of Peru, yeah, yeah. Uh, in all of its color, the fact that they've got kind of like ninja farming happening at you know nearly every sort of terraced altitude, yeah, um, and they can grow such a myriad of types of foods. Mm-hmm. Um, they're the biggest fishermen in the world. So their capacity to do interesting things with fish. Yeah. And obviously we know ceviche, but um, like it, the list is, I mean, it's one of the most ancient foods. So I'm kind of sick of reading about it and yeah. listening about it. Like I need to. You've not been to I Peru. Need, no, no, no. I need to get yeah. there. I need to get there. And um, and uh, I just need to go rogue and um, just get there. Do you ever I'm travel desperate. solo? Do you ever get to do that? No, not really. Not really. That's, and that's the struggle, you know. I've, I've you got have five like, kids, right? Five kids and yep. and and 150 direct staff. Yep. So you know, um, yeah, my time's quite well managed within yeah. a, an inch of its life, and and I'm happy to do that, and I love what I do. Sure. And and we we orchestrate a lot of like we produce our own television, so we get to sort of get excited about you know the stories yeah the casting families um the dishes what lenses we use on a camera to tell mm-hmm. a story you know playing with new technologies to get you know drones or like like cameras mm-hmm. that are inside things like, like we we love telling stories um how can i show you something caramelizing better than anyone else you know you're very um, hands-on uh, with the production you, you... oh my god yeah, yeah, like, like yeah we fight for it i was the first person to use like um the yeah. latest sort of uh, digital cameras on British broadcast. I was the first person to use mobile phone on TV. First person yep. to use like Canon 5Ds on TV. When, when we, said, our last chat, we uh, and I'll link to in the show notes that episode, we talk about some of the innovation in 97 when you first jumped yeah. on the scene. I mean, it, it looked different. Yeah, man. I mean, like, even when we had crap cameras, <laughs> I would use like 1920s slide yeah. camera uh, and 35mm lenses, prime lenses, with black socks, and we would we would achieve depth of field mm-hmm. through tilt and shift rather than the kind of spherical shape of a lens, you know. So you say, well, why am I talking about this? But the reason I care about this is I'm trying to get you to see what I see. Yeah. And the way the human eye works and the way we knock things out of focus. And, and if, if you go right up to something and stare at it and see it getting crispy... Yeah. I want you to see that. And so much of the technology that we've grown up with can't do that. No, so. I mean, naked show, I mean, with your original show, I think it was the way with single camera work, the way the, the energy. I mean, you honed a, a visual identity that was copied yeah. and copied and copied and copied. Yeah, that was more documentary. Yeah. And then as we kind of got better and I felt the freedom, because also I didn't know what I was doing. I just knew what I wanted. Yeah. There's a lot of protocol in TV making. Mm-hmm. Oh, you should do it this way. And and, it's, and and that attitude, by the way, is everything that we've talked about today, which is don't like change, should yeah. do this, should do that. And and whether you like him or hate him, it doesn't matter. But like Elon Musk is like, no, this is what you should like. I'm going to try that and like just mixes things up. Yeah. And so I, I think, you know, in my own little way, like with food cookery. Well, you and Bourdain, um, I, I think, and, and Chef's Table and Stephen Satterfield's show, High in the Hog, I think these are all shows that pioneered, but yours goes back the longest. And, I mean, what gets you excited about food television? I mean, everything. If, I love to hear it's that. Be- it's beautiful. It's, it is beautiful. It's, it's because I think there's um, technically there's more and more interesting things coming out that I can get, I, I can immerse you in the food. Yeah. I think where we could go with AI uh, is really interesting. So instead of you watching me, cook if you think about it like so my if you think about it like my job is to 
look at you down the barrel, like be convincing, be emotional, like be remotely entertaining, like teach you something accurately and cook the wrong way round just so you can see it. <laughs> but actually where we're going with sort of like, you know, AI and sort of 360 filming, um, you could be over my shoulder. Yeah. You can cr- crouch down and look under my arm and see exactly how I'm slicing that and what my fingers are doing to not get cut off, you know. So I think there's more to come. And then um, the idea of making... So the idea of guiding and instructing and immersively inspiring the audience yeah. anywhere in the world. I mean, getting those goggles to actually feel okay on the on the head and yeah. actually be tw- $20 and not $2,000, yeah. that's the future of yeah. food education, right? And I then, agree with you. And, AR and just, is good. And then just intelligent tagging in all of its ways. Like, yeah. like if you're into something, like you can just touch a button or rub your finger over it and then you can kind of you can kind of go like from like factual entertainment into like you tap that and mm-hmm. you can go super geeky into sort of like what is that ingredient and like how can you get it and where is it growing? Like the, the sort of encyclopedic depth. Yeah. So I, I, I love, there's a lot more to come, I think. And then at the same time, just people are so charming. Yeah, like good people. When good you get to cooks. meet them, you get the you get the real honor as a food producer. I get this as an editor and writer to go meet people. You get to be the yeah. the actual. Uh, you get to meet great people, right? Yeah, and also the the real Jamie. I'm not saying you know you don't get a real Jamie, but like the real Jamie's really curious and and like and and I'm nerdy and geeky and I could talk about like mm-hmm. like proper <laughs> potentially boring. No, you're great. Exciting things. I love it. But, um, but 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 a lot of my job is to build stepping stones for people around the world that are really nervous to cook. Yeah. And that means that instead of me sort of massaging my own ego around like the perfectly authentic, whatever that means, mm-hmm. version of this, I need to reflect what I know you can get in your supermarket. Yeah. So if you think about things like one pound pasta, which is not authentic, but but you can't deny it's not delicious. You no. can't deny that there's one thing to wash up. You can't deny that it's actually like you're focused on one thing, and and actually, you know. So I, I I think like I'm trying to come up with solutions. You know, you look at things like well, people buy chicken every week. They're actually getting bored of chicken. Yeah. So like right, cool. Like how can I get one ingredient? Like if say miso. Yeah. Imagine Zantar, my my, my mum and dad it. or your mum and dad. Like what the hell's that? And it's yeah. like well, dude, they're in every supermarket now. Like yeah. You can use it in loads of really cool ways. Miso butter, soy sauce. Let's go. I mean, that's perfect. Like that's like delicious. Uh, and any and any yeah. chicken umami. Jamie, we ask all guests on the Taste Podcast if you could write a book without the burden of time, meaning you have no deadline or budget, meaning you have all the money in the world. So no no deadline. You, this book can be like ten years. What would that book be? I think um, it would be the spice of life. And okay. It, and it would be the story of all these spices that we um, sort of take for granted. Yeah. And um, where they come from, what flowers they come from, what pods they come from, what communities they come from, and all their kind of fascination, what they do to the local environment, soil, microclimates, like yep. nutrition, like um, medicinally. You know, like spices are by weight the most nutrient dense foods on the planet. Um, their, hist- their their capacity to be in the area of like food is medicine, which is a sort of debatable area. Yes, but but their capacity to be well debated is really good, and um, the constituent parts of these things and how they can mm-hmm. help 
your body flourish. What's one chapter or one section? What What's one spice that you'd want to... Vanilla I'd have to do. Yeah. I mean, I'm just... I would do anything to see that yeah. hanging. Yeah. It's such a powerful thing. And um, I've had the the joy of having really good fresh vanilla pods, mm-hmm. like tacky, sticky, marmite sort of... You don't even know what marmite is. You do, you do. Uh, I'm you familiar, yeah. yeah, um, yeah. Sort of... Um, uh, but to see that from the, the motherland, whether it's an island or, you know. Yeah. So I, I think... Vietnam or Madagascar or wherever, you yeah, know, I, India, I South India. The story of spices is really interesting. It is. And I guess it's really a story about currency as well because it was traded and swapped and... and I mean, y- your country is... It was based on the spice trade. I mean, British people are so funny. It's like, kind of, well, that's just not British. And it's like, dude, <laughs> like, we just come out of Christmas. Like, everything about Christmas is not British. Yeah. Turkey, don't come. That's South America. Nothing to do with Britain. Yeah. Uh, you know, like, mold wine. It's like, not, we, well, the, the wine wasn't ours. The, none of those spices are ours. All the spices and, and a lot of the fruits in some of those cakes and desserts. But it it was about something flash, something exciting, mm-hmm. something new, something from another place. That was far, brought far back away. on those boats. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so I'd love to do, but of course, recipes to go with it. Of so. course, the cooking um, side of it. But I, one of the things I love, and I don't know if you share this, but um, I love making a bit of a thing about my spice rack. Mm. Like to me, it's like it just means like opportunity and hope, and like you can pick up like a chicken leg or like a fillet of fish or yeah. a, a butternut squash, like, and you go right, where are we going? Like, are we going to say the same old thing or are we going to go on a holiday? Yeah. So I yeah. love the idea that those spices just... And even... It's cool. Pestle and mortar, like the oldest gadget in the world. Yeah. Like two rocks. Yeah, it really like, is. Like, it's the coolest, most contemporary gadget going, man. Yeah. Like ev- every house that cooks should have one. And, like, you take a few of those spices, smash it up, yeah. season it up, rub it over something. It's I fun to it. bang shit together, too. Let's get real. 100%. Yeah. Jamie Oliver, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thank you very much. Eliza Barbanel, thank you for, for joining. Thank you for having me. I'm ready to fight. <laughs> yeah, right. We're, we're, we're going to do a thing where, uh, this is a new thing, um, where we're talking about underrated items in food, maybe food adjacent. Underrated. Well, you think they're underrated. I think they're underrated. We might disagree. We might disagree. I agree. <laughs> I feel like some of these things are going to be our listener, you, who got it this far, is going to be like, man, I don't really agree with you, Matt. You know what? Write us a letter. Write us a Instagram post. Writing a letter, underrated, actually. We can start there. So the written word is underrated. I just think it's more effective that you've taken the time to find a letter and showcase your bad handwriting and put it in the mail. So I find that's a good way to communicate with people, except you don't know if they've received it. And um, that's kind of hard. Yeah, there's none of that like um, quick reply either. You have to actually go and write another letter and you have to get a stamp and you have to go to the post office and do all that to like the replies instead of like reply. Yeah. The button. Yeah. But it is kind of freeing also because then I'm not like... I don't know why I do this, but sometimes I'll look at my sent mail when I'm waiting for a reply just to prove sure. to myself that it's gone out. And you have to just do a trust exercise with the post office and just let go that yeah. maybe it's going to make it to them, maybe hmm. not. Maybe yes, maybe no. Okay, my first underrated thing that I want to talk about, underrated, eating bars. 
bars, okay. nutritional bars. Say more. Make the case. Okay. So the, here's the case. They've gotten better. Now, I grew up in a land where we, at the health food store where I used to work, would sell a lot of tiger milk bars. Do you remember those? Oh, yeah. Amazing. They're like little candy bars. So the nutritional bar, there, so it was either that or it was like the protein bar, like something with zone in the title. Mm-hmm. And like those tasted like chalk. Yeah. They were awful. And there was like either or. It was like a candy bar called whatever and like kind of quasi healthy. And then there was like the protein, 38 grams mm-hmm. of, of, uh, of protein in a bar. I think the game has changed. I think the game has changed. Have you Have you had a bar recently? I was thinking about this. I on airplanes, I feel like that's a place where I often eat bars. Um, and I like to get the like Bobo's oat bars. Yeah. Have you had those before? Yeah, I have. I find those to be good. I don't really like the texture of most energy bars. And also they're all basically sweet. And I feel like those are my two issues. Well, here we go. Let's get into it because I think there are some that aren't sweet. Hmm. There are some that like are a little bit they're not savory. It's not like savory granola bars um with like nori in it, which would be dope. That's what I want though. Yeah, I know. Maybe not. Maybe, maybe they're out there, but I think I think Go Macro is my brand. Mm. Is People that, like those. Yeah, I'm one of them. You're one of what's <laughs> you give like a go-to flavor? Uh I like there's one that has a lot of seeds that's called like peanut butter seeds. It's like adjacent to peanut butter. It's not like um a Reese's kind of like deep peanut butter flavor, but it's it's there. Um, I like them. There's like some that are in the like um, 10 grams to 15 grams of protein and then some are much higher. Um, The reason I wanted to talk about eating bars is I just think sometimes you stress about what you're going to eat. You stress about what you're going to cook. We, we, we love to think about food all the time, but it's stressful. Now, I am not suggesting that a bar should be a meal because there, no, there isn't enough calories in them to be a meal. Mm-hmm. But what I'm suggesting is to bridge you between two meals, get that bar because they're good. Yeah, I think that at first I had a reaction against this because I remember eating a lot of Cliff Bars hated Ugh. them like I think people have bad Ugh. experiences with bars but I now I'm gonna go to a bodega and buy some after this because I do often find myself that I'm commuting somewhere and I'm not gonna get there or my friends want to eat late and yeah. I'm just in like a weird situation meal wise so I would I think I would actually agree with you that properly utilized bars are underrated I agree and when you uh, are famished and you need something like a snack it makes you feel better yeah so my underrated thing is is not useful um <laughs> It's Weathers Originals, the little hard candies. Have you had those before? Werther's Originals? Werther's Originals, yeah. Yeah, the the little creepy child says, Werther's Originals, my friend, or something like that. <laughs> you remember that? No, but all of my friends make fun of me for liking these. They say that they're a grandma candy, which I think is true that grandmas like them, but grandmas are onto a lot of cool stuff, um, like knitting, for example. Definitely. Mahjong. Maj, Big Maj is great. I, I like uh, I like Werther's a lot, um, so I, I definitely agree with you on that. Um, speaking of wrapped candies, are you a Starlight Mints fan? I don't know if I know what that is. Those are the mints that are, like, striped, oh. that are, like, white and colored in either oh, I didn't red know or a, green. Oh, I didn't know they had a brand name. It was just, like, the mints at the restaurant. It's a it's a it's a brand or it's a category called Starlight Mints. Also a great band from, like, 1997 called the Starlight Mints. Um, but I love Starlight Mints because, you know, after a meal, right, you're having a Starlight Mint. Sorry, back to Werther's. Why do you like them? Oh, I just, I find them to be very, like, deeply satisfying. I think that they have a, a kind of interesting depth of flavor yeah. to them. And I also don't really like sweet hard candies. 
I think aesthetically, I really like the other grandma hard candy, which <laughs> is the strawberry one that looks like a little strawberry. Do you know what I'm talking about? I'm looking away and kind of like giving you a little bit of a side eye because of course I know what those are. <laughs> they're amazing. So to me, like I like those better on looks because yeah. they're tiny and adorable, but I don't actually want to be sucking on, I think, something that sweet for a while. And I find that the Werther's... Werther's. Werther's. I'm worried I'm mispronouncing that. Werther's, now. yeah. Werther's. Is I there like, an umlaut in there, maybe? I don't know. I like that. And also, sometimes I just, this is grandma stuff. I put them in all my pockets and my jackets in the winter, and then I find them on the train or like where I need, you know, a little extra something. And it's yeah. always a delight. Back to uh, the candies that you receive after going to an American bistro in parts of the country Midwest, East Coast, possibly the Southwest. What do you think about Andy's mints? Oh, I love an Andy's Mint. Yeah. And there also is a, a very good uh, vintage clothing store on the Lower East Side that just has a chalice of Andy's Mints when you walk in. Wow. Uh, which is really um, the reason why I spent all my money there because I <laughs> remember the mints and then I immediately see something else that I want. So you can take those mints whenever you want no matter if you buy a, a something cool or not? I mean, I do that. But <laughs> I also, you know, buy a lot of, I don't know, suit jackets there and things like that. Lara Collegi on Orchard Street. I oh. love that you have Andy's Mints if you're listening. Right. Wait, is that lower orchard like like Mission Chinese orchard or or it is um like a block above scars uh kind of by Dudley's broom and broom and orchard I would say I gotta say something that's like definitely rated is Orchard Street Orchard Street is like crazy the evolution of Orchard Street oh it's like overwhelming I would say if I think if if I was visiting New York and I wanted to just walk around an area I always take people yeah like to that area because there's um, scars pizzas right over there they're opening their new location on the block which I'm excited it's about. a sushi bar right the original is becoming a sushi bar yeah. and then I think it's the old fat radish space that's becoming the new scars Dope. but it's gonna be cool I think there's a lot of like big now we're on a whole other tangent but no we can that, we podcast this is what we do. Yeah, I think Superiority no. Burger is opening finally soon, apparently. Oh, we're going to, like, we're just doing openings right now. Well, I'm just thinking about, like, yeah. I think there's a lot of new restaurants that are opening kind of in that area, um, which is exciting. But the Andy's Mints alone, I think, are a reason to go. Um, definitely for the Andy's Mints. Back to Superiority Burger. I've been in touch with Brooks Headley a lot, like, emailing and trying to get him on the show desperately. And he is so cool. I, I love him. He's so nice and, and wants to do it. He just is waiting for gas or something. Waiting for the lights to be turned on or something. I don't know. I'm on the edge of my seat. If anyone yeah. listening follows Superiority Burger on Instagram, at inevitably, like 2 a.m., whenever I'm up too late, they post a picture of like a coconut layer cake or something that looks yeah. so good. And the comment section is just full of people begging to be let through the doors. It's a really interesting strategy to build hype for a place that already, I think, is um, hyped in a good way. Hyped in a good way. I mean, it's in the old Odessa spot at 7th Street and Avenue A. Near and dear to my heart. I can't wait for him to open. Back to Andy's Mints. Do you remember a time ever in your life where an Andy's Mint was placed on a pillow after you uh, checked out or left your hotel room and you returned? Yes. You remember this? Uh, very distinctly. I think I was, well, I'm, hopefully it's happened to me multiple times because that's like, I think, a real luxury in life. But I remember when I was a kid being somewhere in Mexico with my family and they did that. And that was, I think the first time I found out that um, people would give you things at hotels, right? That that was like available to me. That was like the peak of luxury. And I think I still feel that way. Do you have a core memory of this? Core memory is at a holiday dome, which was a version of holiday Inn that were (laughs) uh, obviously enclosed in a dome and included um, indoor water slides, indoor miniature golf, Definitely arcade games, including Double Dragon and uh, Operation Wolf. Um, And definitely some kind of pancake supper menu. 
Um, this is the way the holodome rolled in around 1987 to 1992, where this memory comes from. Where where is this happening? Midwest. Yeah, obviously, definitely. I mean, it's it's probably uh, all over the country. Holiday Inn had this whole dome um, model, but I recall coming back to and you know back then like the hotel rooms, um, you know, were, the way we rolled at least weren't that fancy. I mean, mm-hmm. it was like two um, full size beds, very old, with like a very thin layer of uh, cover comforter on it. It was before we knew about like bed bugs. We could like Google bed bugs. Because before you could actually Google anything, <laughs> literally. Um, but we would show up at this hotel uh, after a day at the indoor water slide and there would be a, a single mint on the pillow of each of our four pillows if it was two doubles or sing- or full size. Wow, my, my head is racing right now. I'm like, well, how can I get to a holodome and throw a party there? It sounds so much fun. And I also feel like, you know, the, my memory, it also wasn't that. I think I ate a cricket that same night as the what? Andes meant. Wait, really? Um, like, by, not on purpose, which I've eaten crickets on purpose all yeah. the time. But I think um, there was like one in my ice cream. I think like everything is rushing back to me now. Wow. Um, but the Andes mint somehow was the first thing that I thought of and not um, not the cricket eating a live. I think maybe it was a grasshopper. It was um, it was a lot. Yeah. I still remember to this day I uh, was getting a salad early in my career. Uh, maybe I was in my 20s. I was eating a salad at work. I was sitting at the desk and I uh, bit down on this, <laughs> this piece of lettuce that I put I'd taken a spork and put into my mouth. And um, I was biting into a grasshopper. Yeah, I did that. At least it wasn't a roach. No, at least it wasn't a roach. That restaurant is long gone, thank God. I never could walk on that side of the street after that um, moment. But not really their fault. I mean, it's just like things happen. I want to tell a story, but I think it would traumatize all of the <laughs> listeners and also put you off of frozen margaritas for life. Oh, so God. I'm not well, going to. I'm off frozen margaritas for life, thank God, but for other reasons. But um, I definitely um, want to hear that story. Well, my friend, I was in Chicago over the summer and I went to school in Chicago. Summer in Chicago is like a competitive sport of, of drinking, probably like everyone is out <laughs> yes, and about. Um, and I walked by this Mexican place that I used to go to in college in Logan Square area and I was like oh maybe we should get frozen margaritas we could try to take them to go and go to the lake and everyone that I was with just stopped in their tracks and was like oh we can never go there again and it turned out that the previous year um, back in like the to-go cocktail era Mm -hmm. of pandemic dining one of my friends uh, got a to-go drink and started drinking it and got like halfway down and then felt something Mm -hmm. brush against her face and it was a giant spider and because it was an opaque drink she didn't notice until she'd already drank <laughs> half of it and my body is like seasoning seizing up telling this story seasoning that's a seasoning of, of a drink it is a seasoning yeah. it's it's definitely like now for a while she told me she will only drink clear beverages from now on yeah very very traumatizing that place wasn't called flash taco was it no <laughs> okay just making sure they're safe <laughs> yeah they're safe because that's the one place i know well thanks eliza that was great overrated underrated we're gonna bring it back again soon. Thank you so much. Thank you. The Taste Podcast is hosted by me, Matt Rodbard. It's produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening. <laughs>